Psalm 137. Let's read that first. Thirty-seven by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song, and those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, Happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Robert Alter, in his very brief commentary on the Psalms, says this about this psalm. No moral justification can be offered for this notorious concluding line. All one can do is to recall the background of outraged feeling that triggers the conclusion. The Babylonians have laid waste to Jerusalem, exiled much of its population, looted and massacred. The powerless captives, ordered perhaps mockingly to sing their Zion songs, respond instead with a lament that is not really a song and ends with this blood-curdling curse pronounced on their captors. Now, of course, we would disagree with him when he says no moral justification can be offered for this notorious concluding line. This is the inspired word of God. It is uh, the word of the captives, the prayer of the captives, or the mourning at least of the captives in Babylon, as they remember what has happened to Zion and to their children, and they sing out of godly love and godly sorrow, and they seek God's vengeance on Babylon. Nevertheless, He does, I think, point us to a couple of things that are uh, to be remembered. As we consider that last line of the psalm, that terrible imprecation of verse 9, we do have to remember that it stands within the context of the psalm as a whole, that this is not... um, minor stuff that the captives are talking about here. They are talking about the destruction of Zion, and they are talking about the cruel murder of their own children, but also the children of God. And they are praying then for God's vengeance on the great cruelty of Babylon, 
against the people of God, against the house of God, and against the little ones of God, of whom Jesus said it would be better for a millstone to be hung about their neck and for them to be cast into the sea than for them to offend one of these little ones. So we look at the psalm not, first of all, in the light of that curse and trying to explain away that curse or explain that curse, but we look at the psalm as a whole and we see that this psalm is an expression of love for Zion. That's the primary thing. And that curse of the last verse rises out of that love for Zion. So let's consider the psalm under the theme weeping for Zion's captivity. And let's look first at the weeping itself as it's described in verses 1 to 4. Then at the um, pouring out of love for Zion in verses 5 and 6. And finally at the hatred of Zion's enemies in verses 7 to 9. So we have first of all the weeping or the grief of the people of God for Zion after her destruction. It's very important, I think, that we understand from the very beginning that this song is not a song even for every one of the people of Israel. It would be very difficult, I think, to justify this song in the mouth, for example, of Jehoiakim, one of the last of the kings of Judah who was wicked and who was removed from his position of kingship by the judgment of God. It would be very difficult also to justify this psalm, I think, in the mouth of Zedekiah, the last of the kings of Judah, who refused to hear the word of God to him by Jeremiah and disobeyed that word, and for his disobedience to the word was brought also into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar. This song is a song of the godly among the people of God. It's very important to understand that. It is godly people, saints, those who love God and those who love Zion who are praying here and who are singing this song. And it is grief that is their dominant emotion here. A grief not for themselves or even so much for their children, but grief for Zion, that is for the house of God, for the dishonor that has been done to God's name and for the terrible things that have been done to God's people. That's the context which justifies the imprecations in verses 7 to 9. And if we don't understand that context, and if we don't see it in that context, we won't ever be able to sing those verses of this psalm 
in our New Testament setting. Every detail in the first four verses of the psalm contributes to the uh, grief, contributes to the description of grief which we see. And what I want to do is work through those details of those first four verses and notice how every single detail uh, of those verses contributes to this description of their grief. Notice then in the first place that they say, by the rivers of Babylon. Now this is a, a geographic description, of course. It, it tells us the, the place and the occasion for the psalm, the captivity of the people of Judah in Babylon. But I think it does more than that. And we have to see, I think, in the light of, see that verse in the light of other scriptures. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1, Jeremiah says this. Jeremiah 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Or think of David, or of the psalmist of Psalm 119 saying, Rivers of waters run down my eyes because men do not keep your law. There is a correspondence. I think these captives are seeing a correspondence here between the rivers of Babylon and the rivers of tears which are flowing down from their own eyes and adding to those rivers of Babylon. So that's first. The second thing we ought to note is that word there. And you find that word there in both verse 1 and verse 2, or verse 3 rather, for there we read in verse 3, those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. Because of that word there, some commentators have said this song actually was written after the captivity and in remembrance of the captivity in Babylon. They are looking back to Babylon and they are saying, there we sat down, there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. But another commentator, rightly, I think, points out that that there expresses their sense of alienation. They could have said here, but here would have indicated perhaps that they had some comfort, some sense of home there in that place. And they don't have that. This is not their place. This is not their home. This is not a land in which they feel comfortable. And they speak of it, therefore, more objectively. They say, there we sat down. And there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. Even that then expresses their sense that they are, as they say a little later in verse 4, in a foreign land, a land not their own, and to which they will not belong, cannot belong, and do not want to belong. 
So that's the second thing. The third thing you read is that they sat down. And that, people of God, is the posture of grief. Of strong grief, of overwhelming grief. You remember when God had taken away from Job all his possessions and all his children and finally his health, that Job sat down in ashes and scraped himself with potsherds. This is the sitting that uh, is characteristic of an overwhelming grief. When people are overtaken by an overwhelming grief, they don't immediately return to normal, everyday activities. If a parent loses a, a child, that parent isn't ready the next day to go back to work and begin his work again. And And employers, in fact, recognize this in their uh, bereavement leave. This is an overwhelming grief. This is a, a strong grief. And the whole life and mind are consumed with grief for a time. There will come a time for, in most griefs, when the grief has to be laid aside somewhat and normal activity has to be resumed. But these people are grieving with the greatest grief imaginable. And so they sit down, perhaps in sackcloth and ashes. The fourth thing that we read here in verse 1 is that they wept when they remembered Zion. Now this weeping is in part, of course, that same kind of weeping that is described for us in Psalm 42, where the psalmist says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Or this grief is partly that same grief that we find in Psalm 120. Woe is me that I dwell in Mesek, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. That's, that's certainly part of this grief. These captives in Babylon are cut off from the house of God and from their own land and place. But there's more to it than that because these captives in Babylon, the godly ones among them anyway, understood very clearly that this had come upon them because of their sins, because of the judgment of God on their sins. You don't have any indication of that in Psalm 42 or Psalm 120. It could well have been simply that enemies had prevented them in those occasions from going to the house of God, but here the judgment of God had come upon these captives for their sins, and as the godly ones among those captives look back then, they must be remembering with bitter regret 
all the sins that they had committed and that brought, had brought this judgment upon them. So there's not only the sorrow of being cut off from the house of God, but there's the bitter regret of sin. And then also, of course, in Psalms 42 and probably also in Psalm 120, there is the hope of going back to the house of God. It's gone now in Psalm 137. Zion is no more. The walls of Jerusalem have been torn down. Its houses and its palaces burned with fire. The temple has been looted and utterly destroyed. There's nothing left for them to go back to. So it's not just grief then that they have for their present circumstances in Babylon, but it's grief for the land and for the house of God. It's grief for that place which was the place of the fulfillment of God's promise. It's grief for the memory of God's fellowship and of God's blessing. It's it's grief over the loss of the whole of the church except such poor and afflicted remnants of it as they can meet with there in Babylon. Then you find, in addition, in verse 2, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. Now, in a number of modern translations, that word willows is translated as poplars instead, and we might be tempted, if if willows were the proper translation, even to make that a part of their expression of grief. We call them weeping willows, and we call them weeping willows with good reason, but if it means poplars, then that doesn't fit. So we won't go into that particular element, but notice that we hung our harps. They don't want to sing. Song is a very important part of the life of the people of God. The people of God love to sing. They love to sing the songs of Zion, but the grief of these people of God is too great. For them there's nothing to sing about. We hung our harps on the willows in the midst of it. And then finally, to make all of their grief even greater, those who carried us away captive asked of us song, and those who plundered us required mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Now commentators differ somewhat about whether that's uh, meant as a, a kind of jeer and a kind of mockery of these captives, or whether it's just curiosity or a, a desire to hear what the music of these uh, Israelites was like. But I think it's mockery, and I think it's mockery because they specifically asked for mirth. Those who plundered us requested mirth. So here are the enemies who have broken down the walls of Zion, who have burned down the palaces and houses of Jerusalem, who have looted the temple and and broken down its walls and, and everything, who have killed many Israelites, who have taken and dashed their little ones against the stones. And now these captors are coming to them and are saying to them, come on, 
Sing us a song of Zion. We'd, we'd like to hear some of that gladness and that mirth which was so celebrated among you before we took your city. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. It's jeering at them in their affliction and in their oppression. And the response of these godly people is, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? For example, how shall we sing Psalm 2? Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way. How will we sing that when Zion lies in ruins? How shall we sing Psalm 48? That celebration of the beauty and strength of Zion. Go around her. Mark her towers, count her bulwarks. See how the kings passed by and trembled and were seized with fear like women in travail and fled away in terror. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? How shall we sing? I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Or how shall we sing? Psalm 149. That song of the triumph of God's saints over the kings of the earth. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. This is the grief of those who see the people of God bitterly oppressed, the house of God in ruins, the church torn by strife, apostate, oppressed by her enemies and growing fewer and fewer in number all the time. It is grief beyond any earthly grief because it is grief for the honor of God, grief for the cause of God, grief for the people of God, grief for the little ones of God. And this grief then arises, as verses 5 and 6 make clear, out of love. Now, if you look at those two verses, I think you may say of those two verses that they are, in a way, self-imprecations. The verses 7 to 9 are imprecations on the enemies. These are imprecations on themselves, if ever they should forget Zion. They wish themselves harm, or better, they call down upon themselves the curse of God, if ever they should forget Zion. 
Now those two imprecations, if we want to call them that, those two imprecations can be read in two different ways. On one hand, you could say, well, these are the self-imprecations of the musicians who were singing this song. They're saying, these musicians are saying, if ever I forget you, O Jerusalem, and if ever I pick up my harp again to sing one of the songs of Zion, one of the glad songs of Zion, then let my right hand forget its skill. Let it be impossible for me to do so. There is no joy in my present circumstances that would justify me ever picking up my harp again. And if I should forget Jerusalem to the extent that I think I can do it, then let my right hand forget its skill. And the same then with regard to his tongue. If I should take upon my tongue again any joyful song, then let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. Let me be made mute and dumb so that I cannot sing. But you can also take it in a broader way. You can say this is what all the captives there, whatever their walk of life are saying. And so the farmer is saying, if ever I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget how to guide the plow and how to sow the seed. And the merchant is saying, if if ever I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget how to work the scales and how to serve my customers. And the soldier is saying, if ever I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill in weapons, so that I cannot defend myself nor fight anymore. In other words, what they are saying then is, if I forget Jerusalem, life becomes vain. Life becomes useless. There's no point in it anymore. I might just as well forget all my skill, all my cunning, all that I have learned in many years in my particular trade or in my particular function. Just let it all pass away. There's nothing anymore for me to live for. And the same then of let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If ever I should open my mouth to speak again a word of gladness or to speak any word of any sort of joy, then let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth because there is no reason for joy left. There is no reason for life left. Zion is gone. Jerusalem broken. The children of God wiped out. My chief joy, note that too in verse 6, my chief joy is gone. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, whatever gives me most delight is nothing in comparison with the delight and the joy that I had in Jerusalem. And if I forget Jerusalem, which is the only thing I have left of her, then let life itself cease. Let me become dumb. And let me sit forever in dust and ashes, doing nothing but mourning her.
Now that may sound, people of God, like idolatry. Is this love for Zion? Is this love for Jerusalem an idolatrous love? Are they placing love for Zion and Jerusalem above God himself? Making of the house of God an idol? I think it's probably possible that one can do that. If one values that house of God for the wrong reasons, if we value the house of God, for example, for the companionship of people who are there, or if we value it because of the sense of self-righteousness it gives us for being there, or if we value it for any selfish reason. But that's not the point here. The point here is that they are thinking of the house of God, of the people of God, of the city of God. And this love for Zion and Jerusalem is an extension of their love for God. And they are saying here that along with loving God, there must be also the loving of his people. There in the house of God, God dwells, yes, but there in the house of God also are those who are the excellent of the earth, those in whom is all my joy. And they therefore say, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Say, in holiness, in godly grief. I would rather be nothing than forget Jerusalem or Zion. And it's out of that love, then, that they have for Zion, for the house of God, that there arises those imprecations of verses 7 to 9. If you cannot get the sense of that love for the house of God and the people of God, and if you cannot get the sense of that grief which the people of God felt there as expressed in verses 1 to 4, you will never, never understand these imprecations. So let's look at those then next. First of all, in verse 7, we have an imprecation against Edom. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it or tear it down. Tear it down to its very foundations. Now, in order to understand why that imprecation against Edom appears here, we have to look at some of the uh, prophecies about Edom. First of all, in Obadiah. Obadiah is the most important one, and it explains why Edom appears here in this psalm. Obadiah is a prophecy against Edom, And in verse 10 and following, we have this. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. So Edom, I think, is singled out of all the other nations because Edom was Israel's brother. 
In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers, that's the Babylonians, carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. So it was not so much that Edom joined with Nebuchadnezzar in conquering the city of Jerusalem, but it was this, that Edom stood by and cheered on the army of the king of Babylon. And they said not, watch out, that's our brother you're attacking. They said instead, tear it down, tear it down, even to its foundations. We hate this city, we hate this people. We want to see an end of it and we're glad. We're glad that you are doing to it what you are doing. And when they were all done, when the Babylonians were done in God, then they went in and looted what remained. And not only did they do that, but they stood at the crossroads and captured those who were running away from the Babylonians and turned them over to the Babylonians. You should not have done that, God says in Obadiah. You should not have done that. Also in Ezekiel chapter 35, verse 15. Ezekiel 35, verse 15. As you rejoiced because the inheritance of the house of Israel was desolate, so I will do to you. You shall be desolate, O Mount Seir, as well as all of Edom all of it, then they shall know that I am the Lord. And again in Ezekiel 36, verse 5, just that one more verse, Ezekiel 36, verse 5, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its open country. These godly ones in Babylon are remembering what Edom did, what Edom should not have done, and what God had said of it. And they say, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem. Remember their hatred of Jerusalem and judge them for it. That, that, of course, is a committing of vengeance to the Lord, a seeking of vengeance from the hand of the Lord. It's not taking the vengeance upon themselves, but it's a seeking of vengeance from the Lord. And it's very much in line with many, many other passages that we have in the Psalms, where the people of God pray for vengeance on the enemies of God. Do I not hate them, O Lord, that hate you? Am I not grieved with those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. It's impossible, people of God, 
to pray for the salvation of Zion without praying for the destruction of Zion's enemies. And this is simply a recognition of that fact. Her salvation lies partly, anyway, in the destruction of her enemies. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem. But it's not that imprecation that bothers us so much as the last one. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. The people of God say of Babylon and to Babylon. Now G. Campbell Morgan in his commentary or in his little book Notes on the Psalms says this about that. Vengeance, the prayer for vengeance must be interpreted by the first part of the song with its revelation of the treatment they received. Very true, as we've been seeing. It must, of course, also be interpreted by the times in which they lived. Our times are different. We have more light. Oh yeah, we do. We have more light. I think we should not be so sure about that. And yet it is well, and here he returns to truth again, and yet it is well to remember that the deepest sense of justice still makes punishment a necessary thing in the economy of God. That conception of God which denies the equity of retribution is weak and false. That is certainly very true. A couple of things that we should say about this. First of all, this is an application of the principle of God's law. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it's expressed directly in verse 8. Happy the one who repays you as you have served us. The people of God are seeking no more than justice against the Babylonians. This is not excessive vengeance that they are praying for. They are seeking vengeance, reward according to the works that they have done. A constant theme of the scriptures. Look at Psalm 28, for example, as one illustration of that point. They seek the justice of God against their enemies. And it's the principle that our Lord Jesus Christ himself applies in Matthew 7 when he says, with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. The Babylonians had judged with a cruel and bitter judgment. And this is the people of God recognizing that the judgment of God will be like their judgment of Israel. But in the second place, we should recognize that this is a recalling of prophecy that had been made many years before, where God himself had spoken of this thing happening. Turn for a moment to Isaiah 13, Isaiah 13, verses 16 to 18. This is prophecy against Babylon. And prophecy against Babylon for what she was going to do to the people of Israel 
in the future. Isaiah prophesied a long time before that captivity. And Isaiah says of Babylon, their children also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them who will not regard silver and as for gold, they will not delight in it. Also their bows will dash the young men to pieces and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is a recalling of prophecy and a a praying that God's will will be done, that his prophecy will be fulfilled. But Calvin has a very interesting and I think helpful comment on this too. And I'd like to read you a fairly lengthy piece of his commentary on this psalm. In declaring those to be happy who should pay back vengeance upon the Babylonians, he does not mean that the service done by the Medes and Persians in itself met with the approbation of God. Notice that. Calvin says this verse, happy, the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock was fulfilled not by Israel, but by the Medes and the Persians who rejoiced when they dashed the little ones of Babylon against the rock. In fulfillment of the prophecy that God had spoken in Isaiah 13, he even mentioned the Medes there in Isaiah 13. So Calvin is saying this is Israel imagining the fulfillment of that prophecy and saying happy will those Medes and those Persians be when they take and dash your little ones against the rock just as you were happy when you dashed our little ones against the rock. And Calvin goes on to say about that this does not mean even that they had the approval of God in this, that it met with the approbation of God, for they were actuated in the war by ambition, insatiable covetousness, and unprincipled rivalry. But he declares that a war which was carried on in a manner under God's auspices should be crowned with success. As God had determined to punish Babylon, he pronounced a blessing upon Cyrus and Darius, while on the other hand, Jeremiah, chapter 48, verse 10, declares those cursed who should do the work of the Lord negligently, that is, fail in strenuously carrying out the work of desolation and destruction to which God had called them as his hired executioners. It may seem to savor of cruelty that he should wish the tender and innocent infants to be dashed and mangled upon the stones, But he does not speak under the impulse of personal feeling and only employs words which God had himself authorized, so that this is but the declaration of a just judgment. That's how Calvin treats it, and I think that's very helpful. We ought to think of it in those terms in relation to Isaiah 13 and Jeremiah 48. It doesn't mean, however, and we have to recognize that too, that there is no joy here of the people of God in the destruction of Babylon. Certainly, 
They look forward to the day of the vengeance of God upon Babylon for her sins, for her cruelty to the people of God and to the children, the little ones of God. And what will we say about that? Well, let us first, people of God, be able to stand by their side or to sit by their side by the rivers of Babylon, weeping with them over the destruction of Zion, over the loss of their little ones, hearing the captive, the captor saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Let us first be able to say with them sincerely, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. In other words, people of God, do we find this difficult because it's immoral? Or do we find it difficult because we don't love Zion enough? Would you be able to stand alongside those captives in Babylon with them, experiencing with them their grief, and say to them, you shouldn't have said those words? In verse 9. That was going too far. Or would that have been the theme. Of those. Who didn't really care about Zion. I think we should ask ourselves that question. Are we going to find fault with an inspired song and with godly ones in Babylon? Or would it be better perhaps if we found fault with ourselves? And try to think what it really would mean for us to grieve over Zion as they grieve. God bless his word.